I was in the phone booth that day. I was, I had my pager on my beeper because we sit inside the phone booth and we just wait for somebody to call. We make the phone call and then we go make a hustle. So he pulls up to me and he's like, the Quran says every soul shall taste death. And that just like, it hit me. From hustling in the streets to memorizing the sheets of Maliki Fiqh and the sciences of Hadith, Ustad Muhammad Shakur has a phenomenal story that sees him born and raised in Toronto, Canada, embracing Islam in 1998 and then going on to travel the world in search of sacred knowledge. Ustad Muhammad Shakur, currently in Taiwan, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu how are you, mashallah? Alhamdulillah. Look, if we can just probably go back there to, to 1996 as a young African Canadian man, what was life like growing up in the streets of Toronto back then? Take us right. back to 1996. I mean, it was, I mean, it was tough. I mean, I grew up, my mother, my mother and father, you know, were, were married. Um, I grew up with a father in the house. Um, we didn't necessarily grow up in a in, in a bad circumstance or like a bad neighborhood, we had a neighborhood that was neighboring us that was that was bad, right? In our neighborhood, it was, I mean, there was a little bit of trouble there, but it, across the street is where all the drugs and everything were selling. So when we grew up as kids, you know, my father was a truck driver, my mother was a housewife, everything was, everything was, you know, fine, because my father being in the house was like, you know, we were scared of our dad, like we never ever wanted to get in trouble. But as we started to get older, like I have two older brothers who are also Muslims. Um, they're both on Facebook as well. Maybe you've seen him, Abdul Noor Brooks, you would see him. He's, he's the second oldest. And then my other brother is Sharif. He's the oldest. I'm the youngest. So when they, as they started hitting 13 and 14, they started kind of finding themselves in, you know, more mischievous trouble. Um, then when they went to high school, it, it got worse. And then that kind of created a conflict in the house because my father was really trying to discipline and kind of my mother was kind of like interfering, you know, the soft spot. And then it ended up, it ended up causing uh, my, my mother and my father to separate. So my father left. Right. He was around, but he wasn't in the house. He left. And I think that is kind of where we as you know, young kids growing up started to take advantage. We can get away with the things that we couldn't get away with when my father was around. Right. So it meant now that my mother was going to work late nights, she was working a night shift. So from 11 o'clock at night to about nine in the morning. We're just, we have the house to ourselves. So like we're on the, like our house is like on the block. So um, our, our house just came, like we used to call it like the dungeon. Everybody just used to come out there and hang out at nighttime. Like you come inside, you come in front of my house at 11, 12 o'clock at night and you just see like a whole wolf pack in front of there. And then, you know, eight o'clock, we know that my mom's bus comes at 8.30. It does, you know, by like 8.25, just, everybody just scatters out. So that's kind of where I would say, um, you know, the first, the beginning of trouble started to happen. And it's one of the reasons why you probably noticed lately that 
I emphasize a lot on marriage in the Muslim community because it's not just about husband and wife. It's about family structure because I person I I personally I personally witnessed from my own self the direction that I went to when my my parents split. I I, I guess the statistics speak for themselves, right? Like when we talk about an absent father. We've seen many reports, many studies that have come out and spoken about, you know, a high level of incarceration, unemployment, dropping out of high school. I guess the struggle is real when a, when a father's not there. So I guess, you know, that definitely resonates with a lot of right. us. And, yeah. and in places like America, that was, I mean, that, that's created by design. I mean, that was something that after civil rights was created by design, very specifically to separate the women and the men in order to end up raising households where... There was no, you know, there was no father around. So I understand the importance of it because I know for sure, like we definitely took advantage of it because once my father was gone, we could, and then the, and then the psychological, um, I would say the psychological stresses that, that come with that, like the anger, some of the anger that I would feel, but at that time couldn't really express it, you know, like my father being, you know, my father being gone, but we were just becoming bad kids. Right. So now that I've, there was a time when I was young where, I, you know, I would I could be like I could have this sense of feeling that I was upset with my father. Right. But as I got older, I was like, man, we were some bad kids. What it must have felt like to have a father raising three boys, you know, who you put so much effort into and then they just turn around and they just start acting, you know, just crazy, you know. And as I look older and I look back now and I'm like, yeah, like. I realized like my dad tried his best to keep us, um, you know, keep us focused. But, you know, you, like when your parents keep telling you, don't go here, don't go there, don't go here, don't go. It creates the impulse. Right. So we lived in a co-op and across from us was Metro housing. So we lived in a co-op, you know, you cross the street, it's Metro housing. Metro housing is like like equivalent to like the projects, what you would say in, in, in the U.S., so that's where everything is going down in terms of, you know, making fast money on the street corner, right? So when you go over there, you start seeing, you start seeing the fancy cars, you start seeing the gold chains, you start seeing. So it's, it's, it starts to look like, oh, okay, there's something interesting. There's something interesting over here. So sooner or later, we end up getting caught up in that, right? It wasn't, I mean, I must have started, you know, hustling out in the streets at like 16 years old. Because the money was fast, right? My and my father wasn't around, so I didn't have any curfew. Um, I could do whatever I wanted, right? Because eleven o'clock till nine o'clock, eleven o'clock at night till nine o'clock in the morning, my mother's not home. Yeah, Allah. Um, can you identify a moment when change started to occur, like when the light finally arrived? Is is, well, is there a moment you can? You can yeah, I can. I I can. I can identify a moment in, you see, I grew up with the consciousness of my mother. Like my mother was, you know, she was a very practicing Christian. She just had a conscience, right? So anytime I was out in, you know, out in the streets doing what everybody was doing, I knew that I was different. You know, like I, 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 I hung out with people that like, they were they they were willing to do whatever you know by any means necessary harm whatever you know you know down to murder they like they were they were about it for me i was like 
no, nah, I'm not bad. Like I used to go home and look in the mirror and I, I'm not a bad person. Like, and I was never a bully. I was like the guy in high school that like, if, if like one of the little guys in school were getting bullied, I'm like, yeah, tell them you're, tell them you're my friend and let's go pull up on the guy who's bullying you. I was that type of person. But so in the neighborhood that I'm growing up in, naturally when you're from a neighborhood, you get everything that comes along with it. So me, I was an objective, I would, I would say I'm an, I'm an objective person in the sense that me, it was just money. I just wanted to get money so I can living, you know, change my circumstance or just make money. That was what it was about. But when you're in the neighborhood, whatever trouble your neighborhood is in, you inherit that. Whatever trouble your friends do, you inherit that because it's the guilty by association. So once what ends up happening is my neighborhood and other neighboring neighborhoods are now starting to get in things where people are being killed and people are dying. There's basically turf wars going on. And, and you know, I had a friend um, who, you know, he was, you know, he was really about that life. He ended up getting killed, right? And then, you know, and it just ended up being a bunch of shooting back and forth. And then I'm kind of like, I'm not really, like, I'm not cut out for this. Like, this is not where I want to be. This is not where I see myself. I know I got to go outside and put on a persona. I know that. You know, every time I walk outside of my house, I got to have on a hard face. You know what I mean? I have to look like I can't be pushed over. Um, I got two older brothers. We're, bit, we're pretty much all involved in the same thing. But when I'm thinking long term, I had this idea in my mind that this is not this is not who I am. Like, it's, it's not it's not me. So I need to find a way to exit. So listening to Wu-Tang was really like an escape because it was like street music, but that thing that we don't want to do this forever. We're trying to get out, right? So I can like remember days where I'm just sitting outside on the park bench and it's raining and the shelter's over me and I just got my Wu-Tang on and it's just putting me in this kind of this emotional, like I got to get out. So I started rapping. Right. So we started, you know, we, we, we started rapping. We figured like rap was the way out because that's all we knew. And I started to become more angry. Like I had this anger about society in me. Right. Like this whole this whole thing of, you know, the, the society trying to keep us down, society trying to keep us locked in. And that started to translate to a dislike for going to school. Right. I just this whole idea because I'm sitting in class and. They're talking about all these subjects. And I'm like, y'all are not talking about life. You know, where's the class on life? You know, so I just be at the back of the class writing, writing rap. But it was a way for me to, you know, express my, I guess you could say, express my angers or express my, my feelings. But, you know, a time started to come where it's like, I really need to get out of here, especially after our friend ended up getting murdered. It's like, I can't, I can't do this no more. Right. So... What was that moment? To be uh, to be honest, uh, I had I had a very um, real situation that happened to me. Um, there we had I had a person who was in my neighborhood. Um, you know, he was an older guy, right? But about that life. But one of those older guys in the neighborhood, like we, every neighborhood has one of those guys that you know people would be like, "Yeah, we can't wait that he dies because he's he's like meaning." He's unpredictable. He'll do anything to anybody. He's the type of guy that would hang with you and then do something to you like right there spontaneously. And you'd be like, what are you doing? So um, I'm young. I'm 16. Um, 
I'm making good money. Let's just say that I have my own car. I have, you know, I'm living on my own. And suddenly he, this guy approaches me and he literally looks at me. I mean, he literally comes to me and he's like, I need to use your car. I'm like, huh? Okay. What, what for? Like, I already know it's a problem. This is like the type of guy. I don't know if you ever seen like a movie like Friday. Like you could bring tantamount to like Debo. You know what I mean? Like a D, like Debo type. You know what I mean? So I want to use your car. It's like, oh man, where is this going? So literally wants to use my car to do a drive-by. No lie. Like literally. And, I'm, and at this time, it's like, I'm kind of like laughing. Like, oh man, come on, man. Like you got to be kidding me, man. Like I could get it. Come on, man. Like seriously. And I'm, and I, and I'm not paying attention to him, right? But he came with one of his little friends. So I guess he had a, he had like a persona to keep up. So I, I know the guy, like I didn't even think nothing of it. At that time, I think I was playing like Mario Kart or something. And he's, he comes in and he's talking to me. Oh man, I can't give you my card. So he walks out of the door and then he walks back in the door and he has a nine millimeter in his hand. And I'm just like, Oh man. Like this guy will shoot. That's what I'm saying. Like he's 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 loose like that. So I'm thinking to myself, like, oh man. So he pulls out the nine and he starts poking me in my stomach. Like at that point, I feel like I'm probably weigh like ten pounds. My whole stomach, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster. So he starts to hit me, and I mean, even here, I still have the perfect nine millimeter mark on my forehead, like perfect circle, right right there. He hits me here. He hits me on the he hits me on the back of. He hits me on the back of my head. The blood starts pouring out. Um, my brothers are there, but they're furious. But there's really nothing we could do because any any type of reaction, you know, will start people start shooting in the house and stuff. So, um, um, I, I I just toss him the keys. You know what I mean? Like I just toss him the keys. Like take the keys, take the keys, get get, get just go. So they take the keys. I don't know anything that happens. Next day I go to, I go out to my neighborhood. I see my car is parked there. So I'm like, okay, my car is parked there. It's parked in front of somebody's house that we know. So we general culture, look inside the mailbox. Maybe you'll find your keys there. Look inside the mailbox. My keys are there. I open my car, me and my brother, we get in the car. We're about to pull over. We're about to pull off. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, we see um, like special forces, like come out of nowhere, freeze, get out the car, take one. Like I'm literally doing, I'm literally doing the one hand out the car, one hand out the window, open the thing, like ATF, AK 47s all around me pointing at me. And I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? They come, they arrest me. They tell me you are under arrest for attempted murder. That's what, and I'm just like, what? I'm like, I'm like, what? No, no. But I always look at everything like a lost hikmah. The hit that got here, it was so hard that the white circle was flesh and this and anything in within the circle was elevated because of the, the, the blow. So like literally it's like that sticking out of my head with flesh. Perfect circle nine millimeter. I told him so I'm like, no, I'm I got jacked from my car last night. You know, I'm like, look, look, look at me like I'm I'm carjacked. Right. Look at look at my head. So they knew that I didn't do anything, but they also knew that I knew who did it. Right. But technically, like 
you know, the culture and that lifestyle, you, you don't know anything. So they're like, you know, they're showing me a line of pictures. I'm saying, I don't know any of these people. You know, I, I don't know anybody. And that is when it really struck me like, like, when, when, if not now, then when, like, like, it was like, it was life that, that was a moment where like, I didn't even see death coming. Like I didn't, I didn't see it coming. Right. I didn't, I never in my life would have thought that I would be, you know, getting arrested spontaneously out of nowhere for like attempted murder, something I never even did. And so that right there for me was like, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm finished. Like it's over. I'm done. You know, I never, I never did any hustle or anything after that day. I just stopped. I'm just, I'm tired. And then um, I ended up accepting Islam. And um, and then I used to just frequent the mosque up until 9-11 um, happened. And then I was staying in the mosque for a while because they wanted us to do security. So life kind of went from there. So can you identify a person who who ultimately drove you to Islam? Was there a single person you can identify? My, I would say the reason for, well, introduction to Islam, it was my older brother. Because the man who gave all of us dawah, the first point of contact that that man had, I'll tell you about him in a minute. His name is Abdul Azim. He was like our Malcolm X. I always, I always like, that's kind because of, that's the kind of talk that he gave us. My brother had met him somehow outside because he lived out, he lived in the metro housing so he would see us all outside but he met my brother first and then my brother came home with this thing called you know the quran right and i remember my brother always used to keep it wrapped in like the palestinian scarf right because it was like it was still like you have to keep it you have to keep it pure it was an english translation and my brother was always an avid reader like even when we were young he used to read novels like i like that habit he got from my mother. I never really used to like to read that much. Either did my other brother. But so my brother would just come home and he'd be like, yeah, look what this Quran is saying. Look what this Quran is at first. I was kind of like, mm, all right, I'll look, let me look at that. You know, I'll dabble in it. But as my brother started to come home more, I started to realize like, yeah, okay, this is, this is, this is interesting. And then my brother took his Shahada, right? Now, the funny thing is, I'm at the point where I already kind of believe in Islam, but I'm 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 like saying to myself, oh, I gotta wait till I'm 100% pure. Not yet, not till I'm like 100% pure. So I'm literally in school, giving people dawah, telling them about Islam and stuff like that. Meanwhile, I'm not even a Muslim. I can specifically remember now that I think back, there was a Somali girl, very conservative, nice Somali sister who used to be in my class. She sat at the front of the class. She never spoke to anybody. She did her work and she would leave. I'm at the back of the class and I'm talking about Islam. And all I can see is she's just doing this. Like, is this guy really talking? Like, she was confused. Like, And she never spoke to me ever. But I could see, like, her head. She would always turn back, like, when I would speak about Islam because she was unsure. Like, is this guy talking about Islam? So, anyways, back to the point is um, my brother had been accepting Islam. Um, he used to go visit this brother named Abdul Azim, who lived in our neighborhood. Now, Abdul Azim is like the like what we call like he's like our Malcolm X. He was that type of he was like our OG. He was a convert. Yeah, he was a convert. 
And like in the seventies, he 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 also was going through like the seventies like gangster era, right? He's from like the seventies old school, right? So he could speak our language. Um, so I remember that day when I was I was in the phone booth. So he he knew who we were because in the neighborhood he would see us from distance all the time, right? So he definitely knew who I was. Um, I was in the phone booth that day, one day, and you know we were. I was I had my pager on my beeper because we sit inside the phone booth and we just wait for somebody to call. We make the phone call and then we go make a hustle. So I'm just sitting in the phone booth and he comes walking by. I think it's him, but I'm not too sure. So he pulls up to me and he's like, he's you know he's like yeah like you know what? I know what you I know you got to do what you got to do son like but you know you still have you still have a chance. And then he told me like you know the Quran says every soul shall, shall taste death. And that just like, it hit me. Like, like it, it felt like one of those things like I wish my mother never said to me like when she woke up in the morning, but this one felt the same, but I knew it was true because he kind of said it to me like that. At the same time, I'm outside in the phone booth and every minute I'm looking left and right. I'm looking left and right. I'm looking left and right. One, I, I got to look out for, you know, if police are coming. And number two, if somebody from another neighborhood is, is driving by our neighborhood, I'm get I get caught out on the on what we call like the front page, the main intersection. I'm like sitting there like, you know, sitting duck. So I'm constantly living with this looking left and right, looking left and right. And then he just strolls up and he says it to me. It just like. Like it just hit me like I can't even I can't even express the impact. It's almost like everything just blurred out for a second. And then he just, he just like, he just left. But that, that stuck with me that, that, that like, it stuck with me to the point where it's like, from that day on, it was like, I would start reading Quran. I would start reading my brother's Quran more. I would start like, I started doing like the Bible Quran comparison type thing, where I would read a bit of the Bible, then read a bit of the Quran. And, um, and then what ended up happening is that he started inviting us, like me and my brother up to his house. Right. And we would we would start to go up to his house and and we liked his vibe because he was OG. Like he spoke to us like like and first thing. You, yeah, he spoke our language. And the first thing you should tell us, he's like, you know, don't don't be here talking like you're a man if you don't got no discipline. You know, he's like Islam isn't for no weaklings, you know, like he tells Islam is for people who are disciplined, you know. You have to wake up in the morning because he, he has a Guyanese accent. He would say, you have to wake up in the morning. You have to wash yourself, you know. Prepare yourself for Allah. You know what you're preparing yourself for? You have to prepare proper. It must be neat and nice. You know, that's the way he used to talk to us. So we, we we used to like, we used to call his apartment like the love shack because he was married to a traditional Ethiopian woman. So when you walk inside of his house, you go to the dining room area, there's no tables. It's like the carpet and the nice pillows around. For us, it was like walking into like an Aladdin setting or something like that, you know, with the bead drapes coming down the kitchen, the incense burning. It was like, it was it like I and I give these examples. What it was for me, what it really felt like for me was like, um, you know, the scene. There's a scene in Matrix where he walks into the house of the Oracle. Like it's a beat up apartment, and he walks into the house of the Oracle, and it's like it's totally different. So it's kind of like when I stepped into his house, it was like a totally different world that we were entering, right? And he and then he would start, you know, he would start telling us you know, more about Islam and, you know, you know, disciplines and, and stuff like that. So what ended up happening is we had this tradition where everybody who accepted Islam 
would go to his house and after accepting Islam, go up to his house and look at the 99 names of Allah and pick their names. So originally I go, I went by the name Abdul Shakur, right? My brother's Abdul Noor, right? My other brother's Sharif. So it was like, just take, like we just had this culture. Somebody accepts Islam, you go to his house and then you look at one of the 99 names of Allah and you pick one. So we have an Abdul Haq, we have an Abdul Hakim. Everyone's, everyone's one of the Asma al-Hisna. That was just like, that was just his thing, you know? So, you know, it was just like, mashallah, like Allah put so much um, blessings in his work that our neighborhood like just became nice again. Like, and then I realized like we were the plague of the neighborhood. We were. When all of us accepted Islam, it's like the grass started greening again, uh, growing again. There was, you know, there was no more, there was no more crime in the neighborhood. Um, it became a nice neighborhood again. SubhanAllah, the, right? the dawah of this one man. Uh, Abdul Azim. Yeah, Abdul Azim. Yeah, mashallah. He was, you know, really real, just real down to earth with us. And that, and that is kind of like where it, that's part of the influence where Be That Basic Muslim came from. Because, because, you know, like throughout my studies in Egypt, right, I was very technical. Like I hit a, I hit a zone where I was very mentally technical. And when I was writing things that I was publishing to the public, it just came across as just like, you know, I was talking, I was writing about things like protocols of fatwa, um, isnad and stuff like that. You know, what's, you know, what's correct and what's incorrect. And then as I, I guess, as I got older, I'm looking and I'm like, common people don't really need all this. We need to get back to brass tacks because the average person goes to work from nine to five. That's what his life cycle is. What can he do within that time to, you know, what can he do within that time to, um, you know, to, to benefit his dean? And from what I see with all the complexities going on, I'm like, just keep it simple, right? Keep your dean simple and, and, and try to stay away from those things that don't concern you, right? So that's kind of where that's part of where that be that basic muslim came from from his influence subhanallah you know from the from the perfection of one's faith from the perfection of one's islam is that they leave off that which doesn't concern them it's and that's so what important. some scholars have have identified as being one quarter of your faith is is to leave off that which doesn't yes. concern you it's so it's so it's so important mm. yeah and 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 the sheikh just pointed out a, a hashtag be that basic muslim and for, for background information for, for those that aren't aware, the hashtag be that basic Muslim is what initially attracted me to the Sheikh. You know, a, a simple message to just really take it back to the basics. Let's reel Islam back in, away from the complexities, away from the polemics, away from the debates and, and, and the, the spectacle of the online world and really just simplify what it means to be a Muslim. And, and when I came across this hashtag, when I came across this initial message from the Sheikh, it really felt like a breath of fresh air. And it was as though, you know, this message was missing for so long and something which we really need to, I guess, stress right. and emphasize in this time. Jazakallah khairan. Yeah, and, 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 and it also relates to my experience after converting as well, because, you know, I, it was the 90s, like when I can relate 90s and polemics was everything in the community. Like, like people were building masjids on, you know, communities on polemics. Like that was kind of seen as the safe haven. 
So the young were attracted to this, but what, what, you know, when you really think about it, they weren't attracted to it because of the men heads or attracted to it because of what was being taught in different places. It was because they were struggling for identity. So they figured that by adopting polemics, it gives me this strong identity that I'm, you know, that I'm serious, right? And then you fast forward like 10, you know, 10 years, even five years, some even three years, and they experience burnout, right? They experience, they experience burnout. So even when I accepted Islam, right off the, right off the mimbar, Friday, everyone giving me the hugs, some people crying, I got tears in my eyes. Guy grabs me, he wants to take me out for lunch. Literally, somebody grabs me in the left hand and yelling at the guy saying, you know, stay ass, stop trying to spread your bidder to this guy. And I'm just, I'm just like, I'm just here like, I'm just like, what, what? What's going, what's going on, right? But Alhamdulillah, our OG shows up, right? And he's got like this heavy voice. Yeah, Abdul Azim, he's got this heavy voice. His voice is heavy. Like no one will contest him in the masjid. He just comes, he says, hey, leave my boys alone. You, what you know about my boys? You don't know nothing about my boys. Don't come around here, you know? And, he, and everyone just let go. Let go of my hands. He's just like, sorry, Abdul Azim, you know? Like he was very serious. Don't come around my boys trying to tell me you don't know nothing. You want, you want to approach my boys? You talk to me. That was his like his thing. You talk to me first, but don't come here chugging my boys. They come into the mosque to pray. They don't need none of all this funny, funny business. He would say because he's guy needs right. It's like oh, we don't need all this funny, funny business. So we went through that. We went through that phase, and that is what really initiated me in in me the desire to study. Because after that, it's like I can't get straight information. Everybody who's telling me information is, you know, can't give me sources or they're just giving their own interpretation. So I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be some system to Islam. Like, what's the system? If you're saying this is halal and this is not, where are you getting it from? Right. Where is it coming from? So. So it's like I need to learn Arabic. So so you went to Egypt. Am I correct? First, you went to Egypt first. No, no. I went to India first. Yeah, no, it's interesting because at that time, I, I generally grew, um, the masjid that I grew up in was generally an Indo-Pak masjid. So, you know, after a while I started to like, okay, I just want to learn a medheb, right? I like the systematicness of the medheb, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn Hanafi fiqh. So I started learning Hanafi fiqh and um, I had one teacher. So originally I was going to go to Pakistan. That was originally what I was going, you know, what I decided to do. But um, my wife being Taiwan, Taiwanese, she couldn't get into Pakistan because Pakistan has diplomatic ties with China. So they don't recognize Taiwan. So we couldn't go to Pakistan. Um, so we went to India. And I realized, hikmah of Allah, India flipped me upside down and just finished me in like three or four months. It was the most difficult time in my life. It was one of those moments where like I was like I was sitting down at one point and I was just saying to myself, like, just break down, just break down, just break down. Just, you know, one of those where I just want to cry, like, you know, like just be a baby. yo. just let it like I had that vibe. And I'm like, no, get a hold of yourself, get a hold of yourself. I'm like, no, just just let it out. Because it was, it was, it was, it was one of the most toughest times that um, we we had. But it was a good lesson from Allah because what what ended up happening is I went to Taiwan and I was making like like good money. They were they were paying teachers like at that time like what 
4,000 US, I mean, Canadian dollars, which is about at that time, maybe 3,700. And that was back in 98, right? For, you know, teaching English as a second language. So, and living, ex living quality here is good, but the expenses were cheap. So I'm saving lots of money. So by the time I go to India, I'm like maybe $25,000, $30,000. And in my mind, and this is the lesson that I learned, in my mind, I started thinking that I can nickel, I call it nickel and diming cutter, where I was saying to myself, hey, I can live in India for maybe $500 a month decent. I have $30,000, therefore I can live for these many years in India on this money that I have. So I started to somewhere there, I started to put some tawakal in the money. Not in the fact that Allah is going to take care of me or, you know what I mean? Everything is going to be Mashiach So somewhere in it, because my friends left, to, my friends came to Mauritania, converts, one of my, one of my close friends who also converted, Ibrahim Robertson. They left Taiwan early and went to Mauritania. I said, nah, I'm staying. I'm, 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 I'm racking this money for now. You, know, you guys can leave now. I'm staying an extra year to make extra money. So I went to India, you know, long story short, within six months, that money was gone. Well, that, that money was, that how'd money that was happen? gone. How'd that happen given that? I went to India with my wife, right? This is like two weeks after, you know, two weeks after we're, we're married. My wife is also a convert. So we get, we get, we get married. Um, we go over to India, right? The minute we get off the plane, my wife is crying. Like right off, right off the rip. I'm like, why are you crying? She's like, the smell. She said, the smell is like, it's different for her. Like, you know, like the smell was, it was heavy. It was heavy for me, but it didn't really bother me. But I think it was just the, um, the feeling because when I got off the airplane and I'm coming out of the airport, I just seen all these hard faces just staring at us. And I was like, man, this is not friendly. Like, you know, like, like non-Muslims, like, you know, just looking at us hard. Like my wife has on a veil, she has on a cob, I got on a turban and we're coming out and the Indians didn't really look too pleased to see us. So the first, it was kind of weird. But when we got there, what ended up happening was, you know, they were just rinsing us for money left, right and center. You know, I was paying for a hotel. Then the next day, they're saying some extra fees, some extra fees, this. So we pay that. So taking advantage, taking advantage of me. Right. But the only reason why I felt like it was possible is because India is the only country I've been in until this day where I had culture shock. I've never had culture shock, even when I went to Mauritania, no culture shock. But Indian culture is very strong, so strong, like that I felt there was nothing around me I could relate to other than seeing Coca-Cola signs, nothing. So I was very, I was very cautious because I couldn't read the people around me. Like I couldn't tell who had bad intent from who had good intent. Like the, I was totally disconnected from the culture. I couldn't sense anything, which made me feel vulnerable. So my, my, my whole thing was protect my wife. That was my whole, like my focus was completely focused on that. I have to make sure that my wife is, is, is okay. So what ends up happening is we go from Delhi all the way to Uttar Pradesh, right? And that's where Saharanpur Madrasa is, Mazharatul uh, Ulum or something like that. We get there. 
Anyways, what happened is we stayed in a hotel. They poisoned us. We were in a Sikh hotel. I got poisoned in India. Poisoned so bad, like I couldn't feel the half side of my body. And the madrasa kept telling us. I thought they were just kind of... I thought maybe it was just kind of like some religious, little bit of religious conflict. They kept saying, be careful of the Sikhs. Be careful of the Sikhs. I'm like, okay, guys, I get it. Like, I, I got to be careful, period here. Right? Because they knew that I was staying in this hotel. So, I'm, I order food and I'm in the hotel. Right? I'm, I'm ordering like, um, like uh, non-meat meals. So, they send me rice. So, I'm eating and I'm eating. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, telling my wife, it's like, I can't feel my fingers. And my wife is like, she's getting paranoid. She's like, what do you mean you can't feel your fingers? I'm like, I can't feel my fingers. And I'm like, two minutes later, I'm like, I can't feel my hands. And I and then I start breathing, and I'm like, I don't feel right. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel right. I don't feel right. And all of a sudden, like, I can't feel nothing in my whole left side, right? And weird, like after 10 minutes, my rice starts turning like green, right? Then all of a sudden, I get a call from my friend downstairs in his hotel room. And when I pick up the phone, all I hear is, Ugh! like he's throwing up so hard that it's pushing him from the laying position to sitting position. That's how hard it is. So right away, I'm like, yo, they poisoned us. Like, it's point. So we go to the hospital. We get, we go to the hospital. I'm telling my friend, okay, we're going to go to the hospital. No needles and no pills. All we, all I want is something that's like Tylenol or Benadol. We're not taking anything. So I get to the hospital. Um, they put us in a room. They tell, oh, first thing they tell us, oh, you're going to need all these needles. You have this high fever because I got this fever out of nowhere. I was like 49, 50 fever. And so, after that, we stay, they say, okay, you guys have to, you know, you better stay here because something can happen to you, like maybe heart attack or something. So we stay in the room. My boys, my, my, my friend stays in another room. Me and my wife stay in another medical room. And the next morning I get up to leave and the door is locked. The door to come out of my medical room is, is, is locked right there, like, Ghetto just kicked in again. Like I just started banging on. I started banging on the door. I said, "Yo, open the door, open the door." Right? The guy comes in. He's like, "What's wrong with something?" Like, Why is the door locked? He's just like, "It's like procedure." And I, I told him, "Like, look, I just hit the point where I was like, look, I just think it's best if you just get out of my way and let me go, because I'm gonna black out." Because I'm feeling really insecure now. And I know like I'm not even in my country. And my main concern is I got my wife. So I'm like, I'm like in tiger mode. So they're like, the reason why they locked us in the room is because they wanted to give us a medical bill and not let us leave until we paid it. So the medical bill was like ridiculous. It was like, like in India, it was ridiculous. It was like a thousand dollars, right? Just for that night. I mean, if I was by myself, I would have fought the whole hospital. I wouldn't have paid it, right? But I was just like, okay, let me just pay it. My my you know, my wife paid $1,000, gone. Get back to the hotel. They're like, you guys have to leave. I'm like, huh? I'm paying the money. We're paying the money to stay. Like, no, 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 you must go. You must go. So they kicked us out for no reason. 
they kicked us they kicked us out of the hotel and then we went to another then we had to go to another hotel and then long story short my passport got washed my passport got washed while we were in when i was washing my clothes my passport was in my pocket now i have to go and get a whole new passport in india and that ended up it causing me to have to stay for like an extra three or four months and money just i can't even tell you where the money went all i can tell you is by the time i got back to taiwan then back to canada was finished money was gone broke broke my i, I sent my wife to taiwan um i we come back to taiwan together um i couldn't i couldn't get into taiwan because they didn't process my exit papers properly. So I get back to Taiwan, you can't enter. I'm in Taiwan, they tell me you can't enter. So literally my wife has to go into Taiwan. They have me in a holding room inside of Taiwan for like 48 hours. And they're like, you have to buy a ticket. And I'm trying to hold out like, no, you, I'm gonna make them get the ticket, right? Because they're not letting me in. But what they do is they put you in a room and they just blast the AC. So after like a day, I'm just like, I called my friend. I had a little bit of savings in my Canadian account. I'm like, send me that money, purchase a ticket, come back to Canada. So now I'm in a dilemma because my wife is in Taiwan. I'm in, I'm, I'm in, I'm in Canada. Um, I don't know what to do. I have no more money and I'm just, I'm just stuck. My wife is back in Taiwan, you know, having some family issues because she converted and it was just like, I was just that, that I had a breakdown then. So that breakdown that I didn't have in India, I had it one day. I was just sitting in the masjid and I had my hands folded. I was just sitting there and then it just, the bouquet just came out, man. It just, just, I just, I mean, I sounded like a whistling kettle, right? Because I just, I was just broken. Like I didn't know what I was going to do, where I was going to go. I didn't want to ask anybody for anything. And I just had one good friend. And it's like, all these things are from Allah. He just came up to me, said, what's wrong? And what do you need? Out of nowhere, I could remember my Bashir Khan, good friend of mine at that time. He was, he just came, he's like, what do you, he was a medical doctor. He's like, what do you need and what's wrong? I said, no, no, I'm okay. He's like, what do you need and what is wrong? Like, you know, like, I'm not going to ask you again. And I said, I need two plane tickets to Egypt because I need a plane ticket to, for my wife to get there. I need a plane ticket for me to get there because my wife is going through a whole bunch of stuff. So I need to get to Egypt. So it turned out that like when I left Canada, I never left. I left with the Nia of Hijra. I never, I never, I never had this idea of going to seek knowledge to come back. No, I, I, I was on a one way journey. Like I was going for self-rectification. I want to I want to go to a Muslim country and I want to stay there and I just want to spend my life learning for me it wasn't about acquiring knowledge it was about spending my time in the path of seeking knowledge that was always my thing so it wasn't about the can I obtain this can I obtain this I just want to live in that path right and so when I got to Egypt like I was very antsy I got out I got in but I'm waiting for my wife to like you know Get, make sure she gets to the airport and then she lands in Egypt and I'm like waiting there customs just like waiting is she gonna make it through is she gonna make it through is she gonna make it through 
And then I see her come around the corner, like, yo, Sakina, man, like the feeling, the, the feeling. So I had to, because I couldn't get to Taiwan to bring her. So I had, there was points like, okay, she has to fly alone. We're coming to Egypt. And I'm just afraid that she's going to get to Egypt and there's going to be some issue because her passport is Taiwanese. Something. I just had so much, like, I, the, the tensity inside the airport waiting for her was just like, and the thing is, is she wasn't coming out fast. So I'm seeing all these Asians coming out, but my wife is not coming out. And then suddenly she comes around the corner and it was like, it was like, mashallah, but I'm broke. Okay. I got $500. I got $500 in my pocket. Okay. $500 in my pocket. Um, so, you know, story in Egypt, you get to Egypt now. Um, mashallah, a good brother I have to give a shout out to is a brother from Singapore named Yazid, a Malaysian brother. Somebody put me in contact with him. This brother didn't know me from anything. But he gave me, when I first got to Egypt, him and his wife had just got married and they had an extra room inside their house. They housed me when I first got there to get sorted. Um, they took me to the airport to go pick up my wife and we stayed with them for about a week until we could find our own house. But this guy never knew me from nothing. And he gave me a space in his house. And then on top of that, after we left, they hand us an envelope for a, a trip to like um, somewhere in, I think it was Alexandria with a hotel package. And it's just like, just go and, you know, celebrate with your wife. You've been separate. This guy doesn't know me from nothing. Right. So, so yeah. So mashallah, he did, you know, good gesture. And um, we became good friends. He's, he's, he's still, I still in contact with him. And so anyways, we got our first house and it was like, it was like a, it was in, I still remember it was in Hayes Sabia in Cairo, uh, Medina to Nasser. And it was a, it was like a small little, like broke down house. The, the fridge didn't really work, and the electricity lines and the water lines were crossed. So every time that we went to touch the tap to turn on the water, we get shocked, right? And that's how we were like living. Like like to turn on the shower was kind of, it made me antsy because I'm like, am I gonna get electrocuted? It's like we lived like that, and we didn't have much money, so. Um, our meal every day was like Asian fool in the can, the fool, the, the, the beans, the brown beans in the can, cut the can, cook it up with a little bit of oil and eat it. And I could remember like my wife would come to me and be like, like on Fridays, like the celebration day, like, can we buy some tuna? And I'd be like, yeah, let's go get some tuna. So tuna was like, like we were eating like delicacy, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, you know what? A can of tuna, mix that up with some onions, put some curry on there. And that was like, that was like us going out to like a restaurant, you know, like we were that mesquite, you know, and um, it, it, it ended up like um, what ended up happening was I my teacher contacted me and then there was a, an Arab brother who used to work for J Jordanian Airlines and he was like, I want to sponsor these guys to study. So he was sent. He started sending us five hundred dollars. Right. So. $500 at that time in Cairo was, was, was good. Like you could live, you could live decent. So I started doing that. Then about six months later, he ended up losing his job. So he couldn't sponsor anymore. 
So now I'm back to square one again. And it's very, and then one day I'm walking down the street and I see this, this building that's being converted into an Islamic school. Now I've been teaching English in Taiwan for, you know, two, three years. I'm actually really good at it because I, it's, I'm good at working with kids. So anyways, I pop in there and they're like, yeah, we're looking for a teacher. I'm like, put me in the classroom right now, do an interview right now. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, give me the lesson plan. Let me go in there. So I just went in there and I like rocked the classroom, right? And they're just like, wow, like, like you want to work here? I'm like, look, I study full-time. Um, if you guys want something that's less than part-time, I'll do it, right? But everything has to be pushed to the morning where I teach two to three classes and I'm gone. They looked at me and said, we will pay you full-time for teaching two classes, right? They ended up giving me a driver, a chauffeur, everything to pick me up and get me home. So they were paying me a full-time salary for only teaching like two or three classes. So I did that for about, about, about three years. So that kind of built up, that kind of built up, you know, and they were paying me like 1500, 1500 US, which was like that for Cairo, that was like more than you're maxed out. You know, I started buying books and so that was the beginning of that was the beginning of Egypt. Like the struggles were were you know were, were tough. Or no, the struggles were tough, but things started to get um, easier. But I would say the main the main thing, like if somebody's asking me, like how how did you do it? Like everything is from obviously Mashid to Lapa. One thing is is I never had a plan B. There was no plan B for me. There was no if this doesn't work, like if studying doesn't work, then I'm going back. No, it's going to work. I never had any plan B period. I never entertained it in doubt. It's like, it's plan A. I'm coming here to study. I'm going to make it happen. It was, it had to be in because I wanted to know, like I had this burning, this burning desire to know, like I want to know my religion. I don't want to just become a Muslim and then not know my religion. I did that pretty much with Christianity. Right. So like I want and then I'm, I, and then, you know, back in Canada, I'm looking at Muslims and I'm like, everybody's fucked with this, fucked with that. But it's like nobody's like, where's the learning? Where can can you give me the source? You can't give me the source. I'm like, I need to learn Arabic. So it was that there was a lot of thick and, you know, thick and thin that um, I had to deal with. And also, I have to definitely credit my wife because my wife was very patient, you know, she was very patient. She was very, you know, she was very calm. It kind of comes with a lot with the, the, the Asian, the Asian culture where the women are just very, you know, relaxed and, and, um, you know, calm, they don't have much demands and, and, um, you know, we stuck through it. You know, my wife ended up learning, learning, um, Arabic. She, she also learned Quran. So it was, you know, it was a win-win situation. SubhanAllah, you know, throughout your entire story, there's one ayah that's just ringing in my head. Uh, the ayah, وَمَنْ يُهَاجِرْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ يَجِدْ فِي الْأَرْضِ مُرَاغَمًا كَثِيرًا وَسَعًا yeah. Whoever immigrates in the cause of Allah, he will find plentiful resources and he will find safe havens. SubhanAllah, it's like Allah is looking after you. It was, it was, and it was interesting because I look at everything as like a hikmah because India, by the time I left India and came to Cairo, Cairo was like a palace to me. Like when I got to Cairo, it was like, mashallah, Cairo is nice. Like Cairo, Cairo was easy in regards to like, um, because I didn't feel, I didn't feel culture shocked because there was a lot of foreigners around. Um, 
it just it wasn't it wasn't hard for me it was almost like i'm like yeah i used to tell my friends like yo egypt is like canada man and then they would come visit me and they're like man you, you you're disconnected this is not like canada i'm like yeah man everything is nice the water here is nice and they're like bro you are disconnected bro this isn't don't do it. It's not like Canada. I'm like, no, man, everything's nice. You can get your Mars bars. You can get a Snickers here. You can, There's nothing you can. I mean, everything is here, you know? And it's just like, man, you, you're, you're disconnected. So I loved Cairo, man. Cairo is a piece of me. I was there for nine years of my life. So. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Mm. And, and you ended your studies in South Africa. Am I correct? Yeah, South Africa. because in Cairo, nine years, I was studying a lot, mostly thick you know, usul, fix, mostly fix stuff. And um, I woke up one day and I was just like, cup is full. Because I was starting to feel like I studied fix so much, but I was like, I'm, I'm disconnected from the sunnah. There's something that's not putting too much life in my, in my fic. Like studying usul, yes, but hadith are coming in the books and I'm just not, I'm not connected. There's a disconnect. So it's like, I got to study Hadith. So Cairo doesn't really have anywhere that really has like a fixed minhedge like you get in like Darlaluma dresses. It's, that's not even up for, for debate, right? They have a long system of studying Hadith. The thing that I, the reason why I didn't want to go to South Africa, I was like, man, I'm not trying to study in English, you know, like I'm not trying to study, you know, I want to study in Arabic. So anyways, I woke up, I contacted my friend uh, Mufti Hussein. Um, and he's like, yeah, come to South Africa. And he's a book merchant. See, like Allah just made everything easy. Like Allah, like Allah facilitated everything for me. I had at that time, my, my book collection was about half a ton. So I had a huge book collection. So if I'm moving to South Africa, I still need to, I still need to sort out my books because I'm not leaving my books. I call Mufti Hussein to kind of ask him like, yeah, what do you think about South Africa? You know, he's like, just come. And I'm like, and I also got to deal with my books. He's like, hey, I'm actually sending out my shipment next week. If you can hurry up and pack up your boxes in the next three days, I'll send them to South Africa for you. Right. So I literally just go pack up my books. I got, you know, he arranged for some guy to come pick them up and they were already on their way to South Africa. I tell my wife, we're going to South Africa. That's like overnight and then um we we get to long story short we get to south africa and um studying there was one of the best experiences i've ever had i i prefer if out of all out of all the places i've been in the world in terms of muslim community and muslim environment even throughout many places i've been in the middle east nothing beats south africa i've never seen a muslim community like this. When I say the real sense of a Muslim community, they have a real sense of a Muslim community to the point that I think that the rest of the Muslim world doesn't even, is missing out on understanding what's happening in um, South Africa. Just so, so it's, it's so valuable that it's not until I left South Africa to go to Malaysia that I realized what I was you know, what I had, I went through like a stage of depression when I was in Malaysia, like, and I didn't really know what depression was. Like, I, I always used to think it was a bit overrated, but it was just, I was waking up in the morning and I didn't want to move. I just hadn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't know why. Um, but a little bit about South Africa is I went to the study Hadith. I did the Dota there. 
Um, instead of doing it in one year, I decided to split it into two years. And um, the one of the biggest benefits that I like there is that the way they teach the class is that you have all the students, obviously you have the teacher there, and each day somebody is responsible for reading, right? And when I say when we're studying the six books of Hadith, it's not this wabihi kala hadith and get it. No, it's read the Hadith, break it down, study it, because whoever is reading to the teacher has to read the Hadith and then translate it on the spot. So everything is translated on the spot. I had been in Egypt for nine years, kind of disconnected from, you know, English a lot. So when I when I went to South Africa, what I thought was going to be a bad thing ended up being a benefit because basically we translate the whole thing. So if you're studying the six books of these, you're translating the whole thing at the same time, right? So it's a it, it's 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 good for it's good for thinking, right? Because you actually get the art of translation while you're doing it. So the teacher read, I mean, so the student reads, the teacher explains. Um, we read a little bit of stuff out of the Hashia. We translate and we move along. So I did that for two years. Um, I also did Mishkat Masabih during that period, Sharh um, Tahawi, um, and I mean the community. Like I can't, I can't emphasize, um, you know that. Like even for my wife, we lived in a small town, right? Where called Camperdown, where there was I don't know a few hundred Muslim families. But the options that my wife had in terms of uh, finding women, I mean, women teachers for the Quran, because that's like the option over here, option over there, you know. So my wife's benefit, like Quran, just like, just extremely excelled there. You know, more, far more than when she was in Egypt. SubhanAllah, South Africa, I guess like Islam is entrenched, heavily embedded in their culture. Right, so. You no, know, I think like you can just walk across the average Muslim and you'll be like, yeah, I've, I've, I've memorized the Quran. They, they, they've done a good job of really seeping Islam well, into their culture. Well, it's interesting because it's funny because they don't, they don't really have an identity crisis. Like one of, the, one of the things that kind of threw me off there is like, I would go inside of a shopping mall, right? And I would see like, you know, typical Muslim youth, right? And you know the style there they got is they wear a kufi and off to the side like this, right? And he's and he, and he like and he's yeah and he's sitting in he's sitting in front of the theater just chilling, you know. Might might you know he might say something to like a girl walking by or something. And I'm thinking to myself like, what's wrong with these guys out here looking like that as Muslims and this is how they behave, right? So for a while it didn't it didn't make sense to me because in the West generally if you're if you're if you if 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 you're not really a practicing Muslim, you don't want to dress in a manner that that attributes you as a Muslim. You get what I'm saying? Like, we don't, we don't, like, you know, Muhammad turns his name to Mo, for example. So, but there, Islam is so comfortably accepted that having an identity as a Muslim is, is normal. Even if you're doing some type of mukhalifa, it doesn't, just because you're doing something contrary, doesn't mean you don't put your kufi on your head and you're still out. So, People identify with Mus as Muslims without a problem. Like my wife, my wife wears a veil, so she felt most more comfortable in Egypt. I mean, in South Africa than she did in Egypt. It's not even a barrier. I'm talking for non-Muslims. Like seeing my wife come inside of a place is not strange, right? There's no discomfort. They don't feel the barrier. They're, they're open arms. They're open. You know, there's no issue. And that was kind of that was kind of weird for me. I'm like, man, these people don't they don't feel away when they see 
a woman with a a, a veil like I'm just giving you like like a, a real example like you, you walk inside of a store it's a you know it's a typical white lady inside the store and she's like interested in striking up conversation with my you know with my wife you know and I was just like this is like interesting like that the people are so open where it's kind of like you you do experience in Canada like people are open but there's there's still a bit of reserve you know that's like mm, I can't really relate to this person but in South Africa it was um it was amazing subhanallah that that that's so beautiful to see in South Africa how they're really I guess living living the spirit and the message of Islam uh Sheikh it's it's been a long discussion alhamdulillah a very fruitful one uh, an amazing journey thus far but before we do have to end this podcast I want to ask right. you a very important question you've traveled the world you've left Toronto you've went to India South Africa you've went to Egypt you've right attained all this knowledge and now you're back at Taiwan is there a part of you that wants to go back to Toronto and and give it all back man this is this is this this is this is one of the most difficult times i would say i guess because of you know covid and the pandemic and stuff like that where i'm i have so many mixed emotions there's such a big part of me that you know wants to go back you know on the ground and you know it just got mixed emotion but i i miss the city i miss the people there and i feel like at this point right now, I kind of feel like a resource that's untapped. That's how I feel. Like there's so much things that I can do going back um, on the ground. So what I'm actually doing now is I'm starting um, a Be That Basic Muslim website, which is going to basically be a weekly newsletter. Um, and I hope to build that up. And then maybe in a, I'm, I'm thinking of in a year or a year or two, maybe even next de- next year, I might just pack up and go back to Toronto because that's what I want to do. SubhanAllah, Jazakallah khairan, Ustaz. It's, it's, it's been a, a wild journey, a wild journey if I could describe it like that. But throughout your journey, I guess there's a constant theme and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has sunan, He has ways, He has a pattern of, of dealing with people essentially to, to, to bring them back to Him. And, and I guess that's what we see in your story uh, in, in different angles, in different times, Absolutely. in different places. Allah is just channeling yeah, you it's, yeah, so you can come back it's, to him. It's, 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 it's been, been a, a wild mashallah. ride, but I guess the, the, the final message is, and ultimately we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we end this journey in a state that, that he is pleased with us. Yes. So, so jazakallah khairan once again. Yeah, that's yeah, that, yeah, and and that, and then on that part is why I'm you know I try to drive home, be that basic Muslim. It's okay to be basic. The more you add complexity to your life, the more you're setting yourself up to, to you know, open up avenues that you don't need to open up. So just, it's you know, everybody has a zeal to be great people, but in my time, in in, in this time, I feel like. In a world that's so dark, if you just have that candle, you're blessed. You don't need a big light. If in this in a in a world that's so dark, if you just hold your candle enough to light up around you and move, is great. You should consider yourself great because what I usually do is, you know, there's some days where I just walk around and I'm like, 
Just look outside how many people haven't been given Hidayah. And Allah's giving you Hidayah. You can just walk outside and see it. You know, you walk outside in Australia, you walk outside and we just look at all these people 10 times better than me. But Allah just hasn't given them Hidayah. So there's something to be grateful for, right? You can't miss that. So if you can if you can fulfill your basics of your of your deen, focus on consistency. That's what's great. And add a little spice on top when you can, but focus more on consistency, the things that you can do. And you can be that basic Muslim from, from the beginning to the end, inshallah, until our last breath. Inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khairan ustad. Alhamdulillah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you everyone for tuning in and for watching this episode. Uh, if Leave us feedback down below, leave us comments, suggestions for future episodes. Don't forget to like, subscribe and hit the bell for notifications. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.